0: You're listening to Life of the Record, classic albums told by the people who made them. My name is Dan Nordheim. Cursive formed in Omaha, Nebraska in 1995 by Tim Kasher Matt McGinn, Steven Peterson, and Clint Snazzy. Cashier, McGinn, and Peterson had played together in the band Slowdown Virginia prior to forming Cursive. They released their debut 7 Inch in 1996 on Lumberjack Records, which later became Saddle Creek. In 1997, they released their first full length album, Such Blinding Stars for Starving Eyes. Another album, The Storms of Early Summer, followed in 1998, but the band broke up before it was released. Kasher had gotten married and moved to Portland, Oregon. When his marriage ended, he returned to Omaha and decided to reform Cursive. Ted Stevens took over for Peterson as they began working on their third album. Domestica was eventually released in the year 2000. In this episode, Tim Kasher reflects on how the album came together. This is the making of Domestica.
1: Hey, uh, this is Tim Kasher from Cursive, and we're talking about our album, *Domestica*. We technically don't call it a divorce record because um, it is ultimately fictionalized, and uh, the couple doesn't get a divorce. Like, nobody gets a divorce on the record. Uh, And Saddle Creek created a bio that basically was exposing, you know, like, Tim recently got a divorce. I'm like, let's check out this, listen to this record, you know? And yeah, so and it was a conceptualized record and it was about a failing relationship. So it's really kind of parsing words to say, like, well, it's not a divorce record. It's a record about a failing relationship, you know? It's like, okay, well, whatever you want to call it, Tim, you know. I do think that was an important part, though. I think that us coming out in front of it and saying, like, this is a divorce record, I think it did kind of inform and shape the record quite a bit and probably in a way that Saddle Peak was probably wise to do so because it maybe perhaps it did help people to recognize, like, oh, I understand this content a little bit better. Perhaps, again, I don't know. I feel like I'm an outsider about this a little bit. I think we should be interviewing uh, fans of the record (laughs) and see what they think let them tell us if it's a divorce record or not. I have a hunch that they think it is.
2: i for one have felt its yeah so
1: what happened with cursive we did two records uh, such blinding stars for starving eyes and then we did a second record called the storms of early summer and so we stopped the band uh, before storms of early summer even came out i'd kind married kind of on a on a lark and uh And we moved out to Portland, Oregon, just to kind of try to find some excitement, some adventure in our lives. Uh, I found that adventure by becoming an assistant manager at a uh, Walden Books. (laughs) It didn't last very long. Uh, So I recall, you know, living in an efficiency up in Portland when uh, I think somebody sent the Storms of Early Summer CD to me. Portland didn't last very long. And then we kind of, my wife at the time and I, we kind of like slowly made our way across back across country, made it back to Omaha. And uh, that relationship kind of ran its course, unfortunately. Uh, still good friends. Um, so I think that getting married and moving to Portland and stuff was kind of guess supposed to be the next chapter in my life. And that fizzled out. So I kind of went back to Matt and Clint, Matt McGinn and Clint Snazzy, and I was like, I could probably start doing cursive again. I don't really know what I'm doing. Uh, Steven Peterson, though, had already gone off to college at that point. He was our guitarist on the first two albums, so we picked up Ted Stevens. Ted was our is already a songwriter. He was and is. So it wasn't really uh, the guitarist that we wanted, um, only because I didn't want to step on those toes. Uh, he was doing Lullaby for the Working Class, and uh, that is one of my favorite bands. So we actually asked a couple other guitarists um, before we asked Ted. And when we asked Ted, it was really with this like big disclaimer of like, look, this feels inappropriate. You're not a second guitarist writer. You're a, You're a first guitarist songwriter. And you should be doing your own records, your own albums, um, your own bands. But, but if this is just something that you know seems appealing to you, he previously had played with Clint's Nazi, our drummer. That was his drummer for like his high school band. So there was like all of these, you know, and it's Omaha, it's small, and the scene was small. But there was those connections were kind of already there. So uh, Ted was kind of like, yeah, sure. And that is such an important part, I guess. Maybe that long story was to say that's an important... Um, Ted was a really important element as to Damasca being made. And he's been with playing with us ever since. And I think that Ted is kind of a seminal part of what cursive sounds like. It's just kind of like all that kind of like odd, more odd and queer um, guitar work that he puts on top of everything. He has a lot of input aesthetically to both to the songwriting and to just kind of like the entire... really everything about what the band does. Uh, So we brought Ted in and then did the album. Domestica is the fastest record we ever put together. And we're still asking ourselves the questions of like, why? Why did we have to put it together so fast? And I feel like the best answer is that we were still young and that doesn't even matter. Young doesn't matter. (laughs) But we were still mostly uh, working on a local level, but with like a foot in this national scene, you know, we had had our first album came out on was like on a New York label and on an LA label, um, so it kind of had you know a little bit of it. Kind of helped for touring and stuff like a little bit, uh, but you know, I think our impression was like, "Holy shit, we quit the band and we took off too much time, and we really got to get something else out quick." I think that was our attitude. Ever since then, I mean, we've. I don't know. I do a lot of projects, so really cursive only puts... It's, I'm going to guess that Storms of Early Summer came out in 98 and "Domestic" came out in 2000. So we really didn't lose any time at all, but I think at the, our impression at that time was like, we better get this out quick before people forget who we are or something like that, as if anybody really knew who we are to begin with, you know? <laughs> uh, but uh, it's a nine-song album because that was as much as we could cobble together.
2: Equilibrium inebriated Social graces have been displaced as we sink deeper into the joy, the volume increases. Nighttime resurrects, but like silent wars rumble somewhere below. The surface is for the
1: surface is for Probably why I wrote it fairly quickly is because it was I had just gone through a lot of, um, pretty specific and intense experiences that I just probably needed to get off my chest. I think there's probably a certain amount of, um, protection or shielding of the actual, the more raw story from trying to color it in with, uh, elements that were, uh, closer to, um, storytelling about this fictionalized couple who was really, you know, sure, probably more accurately, Kim and I, but, uh. I guess just the protection that I've always done as a songwriter, as just a writer in general, to protect oneself, you kind of have to keep everything fictionalized. So now I can look back and be like, okay, well, yeah, upon being asked the question of like, what was the writing process like, or it's like, sure, I had recently gotten divorced. And so I, a lot of the story line was just me kind of like getting out a lot of what Kim and I had just gone through. But both Kim and I both know, if we were to sit and listen to the record, that a lot of it is, you know, we we know what's accurate and we know what's not accurate, you know? And so I think I even made a point of not having them get a divorce because I probably was recognizing that it was getting too close to my own story and I needed to, um, I needed to shield it. I needed to shield Kim, you know? I think it's like, as with most fictional writing, it's so unfair because... Most fiction's not actually accurately fiction, you know? And it can be so unfair to the person who doesn't have a voice, who doesn't have a say in the matter, you know?
2: The shell is dropped, lines explode, shards of words,
1: Casualty, uh, yeah, I think that it was a pretty convincing, like, uh, punch for an opening track. Uh, opening the album with The Night Is Falling Down the Staircase is probably a good, um, you know, it's like placing ourselves into the action, I suppose. That song felt like a kind of a front runner for us as we were working on the record. And sometimes that's the type of thing that could get you that top spot, that first <laughs> that first track, you know. I think a lot of songwriters and album creators uh, think this way. I think that the first song is not necessarily like your biggest banger. It's something like unique. It's an entrance, right? An opening, an opening track. That's what they call it. You need a proper opening. And sometimes like your hottest song might not necessarily be that. But also you kind of want to, I don't know, there's this There's this tendency to top load albums. I think that any, where are all my album creators out there? Like I think that they, every. you know, there's a tendency you want to top load shit because it's like you want to put all those songs that you think are more convincing, you know, toward the top because uh yeah, well, you're afraid people are gonna turn it off probably. And you know, are people gonna get through the album or not? You know, you're trying to like you're trying to create something compelling. But I also, you know, the way I've always crafted albums is you gotta also save You know, other songs that have to be used as anchors or as cabooses, you know. I will say that this song, um sorry for calling myself and calling us out, but um I respect the song. I'm a fan of it, but I do think that it's as a track, it's one that gets a little more derivative that it will sound a little bit more like our influences. I don't need to specifically say Fugazi, but I do end up specifically saying Fugazi when we put out the burst and bloom EP and kind of, um, you know, we do a song called sink to the beat where we kind of name check um, some of the influences that we were wearing on our sleeve. And one of them was uh, Fugazi and I, I think I just felt compelled to call myself out because I've felt like songs like Good Casualty are a little less purely from our songwriting sensibility and has shows a little too much influence on them. Hey, that's okay. I think this happens all the time. I think all of our, these great artists and our favorite songwriters have these moments where you kind of, they kind of are like, oh yeah, well, I really love Chrissy Hine and this is my Chrissy Hine moment or something like her. I just couldn't help, you know? And so I think I've been kind of hard on myself and hard on domestica over the years for that reason, but mostly just because I'm just trying to, and it sounds like hippie or cheesy, but like trying to be true to myself, true to my own songwriting. And so when I look back and kind of find things that I think are, have like shades of clear influence, then uh, I can find it a little disappointing sometimes, but uh, all that to say, Hey, look, I'm a fan of the song I don't think it's like and again it's like yeah I grew up you know listening to like indie hard rock in the 90s so guess what (laughs) you know like that's like like you just like I think that with Domestika uh, we wanted to we wanted to fit in a little bit and by Ugly Oregon I think we kind of got back to like just being like our weirder selves but that's again that's things that things it sound like I dislike or care for Domestica less, and I think that's kind of unfair. I'm not pitching this record at all to you or to anybody. <laughs> I'm simply, merely speaking my mind. Uh, we've been doing this Domestica like rollout with um, a new with a new reissue and and playing it live front to back, and it's been really awesome. It's been a really cool experience, and uh, and I'm just being sincere about that. It's nice to have something written 24-odd years ago or so that people still appreciate so much and that I can, like, also, um, you know, there's no, there's not a song on the record that I have to be like, oh, well, and also this one, or, you know, or I have to feel kind of cringy or embarrassed about.
2: Soldiers down, floodgates burst I said things I wish you never heard Like still home. Where the phone was thrown It's growing As we speak And it's sucking us both in A vacuum of sorrow To swallow up the
1: day You know, we lived in an apartment and um, there's still, you know, like there's still being a hole in the plastering of our wall, <laughs> like, was like, what ended up being like a fairly clear and obvious uh, piece of symbolism for me <laughs> as, uh, as um, I was like reflecting back on um, the relationship that her and I had had. Uh, nothing like so terribly violent, but um, there's like kind of a violent act in that, just in the idea of a phone being thrown in a hole in the wall. <laughs> you know, in the plaster as a result. But uh, I don't know. I think that's probably getting a little too close to talking about things that are like, you know, like make it seem like I'm starting to like point fingers or waggle fingers or something like that. And I'm really not. Kim and I are totally, um, we were young and just like going through, uh, you know, like a tough time trying to figure ourselves out and figure each other out and trying to figure out how to make make our relationship work, you know, and just also drinking way too much. You know, a song like The Martyr, you can't really retire. Not citing a complaint here. Finally, a complaint. <laughs> I really don't mind playing that song. But um, it's a different song for me. And it's a song that I'm um, pat myself on the back a little bit and say that it's an interesting uh, composition. It's amongst the better compositions, I think, that we've come up with. Uh, so I'm proud of that. It has a good movement to it. I think that uh, what I like about The Martyr is... It's what I do with so much music is uh, it's verse and chorus, but you kind of futz with it. You try to futz with a song enough, or at least is what I like to do. There's a lot of compositions. You try to futz with it enough so that it becomes a little bit more vague about what verse and chorus is and uh, and just try to make it feel more like pieces, like parts. But yeah, so the composition for martyrs is cool and uh, that we were able to come up with that dissonant guitar piece so early on in the songwriting of it. And so we could use it to kind of frame how the song was being, was working. That's also pretty rare for us as for songwriting. I think a lot of times, um, like those kind of like guitar ideas will, uh, present themselves much further along, maybe after the composition's already been finished. But I do kind of recall coming up with that kind of falling upon that, uh, guitar idea. And, uh, being like, oh, cool, you know, this really works. And uh, so we are able to um incorporate it as part of the songwriting in the song. And that's great. That's not something that happens very often for us. And so it's
2: begun. this is year one, the birth of a child, in the form of a man, wrapped in a towel, passed out on the floor, these drunken hours, graces deep. Cast down by an angel. She used to kiss his weeping eyes. Depressed in her bosom. She tears rolled off the nipple. The
1: top of the song is kind of suggests this kind of gross like birth of this new monster man who's who's a newly divorced drunk. And yeah, so to compare that to Rosemary's Baby wasn't so hard for me to be <laughs> compared to being the devil incarnate being born, you know, in the aftermath of this, uh, of this relationship. Yeah. Major spoiler alert. I think everyone's probably seen Rosemary's Baby at this point. Actually, I'd be, I'm surprised at how many people haven't seen that movie still. But yeah, at the end of Rosemary's Baby, uh, she has a baby and it's the devil. It's the devil born on earth. And, uh, The cabal of Satanists chant the year one, which is, um, I think I've kind of read of some people consider to be also being the year one, as in the year one, as in this is now whatever you want to call it. You can't call it AD one, the birth of Jesus, but whatever the uh, Latin we want to use for the, you know, the first year of the birth of the devil. But yeah, they kind of, he yells out the year one because uh, it's the first year of a first year of Satan.
2: Sweet baby don't cry Your tears are all
1: Um, fixation for better or worse with a uh, religious imagery or i should say christian imagery and that's just from an upbringing and that's just 12 years of uh catholic school catholic and jesuit i guess i should say more specifically so really um you know it was totally indoctrinated so so much of that imagery is just with me now forever <laughs> you know but i yeah I, I like to go back to i mean it's uh Oldest stories in the world, the Bible, you know? <laughs> and uh I go back to them uh time and time again. Even today, I am um, I just can't stop. But I also my fixations also has you know it's also rooted in a certain like I think a clear like bitterness that I developed from those twelve years of um kind of being having that at times feeling like it's being forced down your throat, you know.
2: And his better the glass was head the still
1: as far as like the lyrics of. The- the martyr Um, i appreciate anybody who recognizes my attempt at being um even-handed with the storytelling of a relationship it's really a shitty thing for a songwriter to be able to come out and uh you know just kind of like uh lay out all of their dirty laundry and only have one voice and not really represent the other side the other 50 percent of the relationship um even grosser if it's a male you know i think that sometimes I'm, i'm certainly more forgiving for um Albums written by women where if a guy is like a piece of shit and uh, they want to talk about it, it's like, yeah, let's fucking talk about it. Let's air that, you know, uh, but I am not as interested in hearing men talk bad, bad mouth women. It's like not really very compelling to me, you know. So, is Smarter is like kind of like more or less from the word go is like kind of offering um, the female's perspective on it and giving this female, giving the um, woman an opportunity to um, to take down the man and his bullshit. A singer or somebody on stage who's using the sorrow to, um, for a gold mine, so to speak. Yeah, I think it's quite clearly, um, my impression of how somebody who would be an ex of mine specifically would, um, perceive of songs such as these. It's always complicated, right? For, um, any writer to, uh, to, uh, kind of take from their own experience and then. I think this is again so much of like the struggle of what is about and like the overall unwillingness to kind of like clearly um claim that it's just my own life, just like it is and it isn't. And I think the martyr's actually a good example. I mean, I don't know how Kim ever really felt about this album, but I went ahead and inserted her opinion (laughs) into you know, I kind of created that opinion for her. Um, but in deference to her and um much to my own folly, I suppose, you know, just kind of creating a what I imagine would be not an unfair uh, reaction that somebody might have to hearing an album that they might perceive as bullshit, you know? The electronic drums that we use uh, at the top of Chalamine's Deep Ends is uh, very much a product of another big influence of mine at the time, and a big influence of mine in general, uh, Portishead. Although I've never been, I've never been hard on myself for my for having Portishead influences the way I've been hard on myself about having Chunk or Fugazi influences. I think the reason why is because Portishead is just such a... What a great um, band to, to take influence from, especially if you're kind of playing some kind of post-hardcore music. It's borrowing from a different genre, and that seems much wiser than borrowing from one's own genre. That's dangerous, I think. So, yeah, I just was... I had become infatuated with Portishead in the late 90s, and uh, so it was kind of short-lived, but the um, for any real historian's... Of what I do, which is like maybe there's two of them out there, the drum sequences on both Domestica and also on the first Good Life record, which is called Novena on and Nocturne, which I want to say came out and also came out in two thousand, or maybe it came out in two thousand one. Um, to me, as the songwriter, they're really companion um, albums. They're both albums that are that are post that divorce and kind of touch on that relationship, just with different sensibilities, with different attitudes. But they both uh, also share this kind of very remedial electronic drum work that I was working on so hard. It was so difficult. It's so much easier to work on um, electronic drums with technology these days. Back then, I was using like this little elesis I wish I could remember the name of it for any tech geeks out there. But anyways, it's just this little drum machine. And you know, I'd spend hours and hours on trying to figure out how to make that Thing work and I ended up coming up with just a few remedial drum beats, and one of them I ended up on shallow means. Swim. placed this song uh third on the album because we uh had the impression that it was going to be um a much better received song turned out that casualty and um, martyr really are kind of two of the i guess best received songs on the album or maybe i'll i might go with the martyr and maybe radiator hums i'm not really sure it's nice that this album has um a lot of different favorites uh But I feel like Shalaman's Deep Ends is not (laughs) is not one of those. Uh, But it's a cool song. It's been nice playing it again. Um, It's something that hasn't really, it wasn't really quite evergreen for us. We haven't taken it with us over the last two decades. Uh, So we've been playing it again for this Domestica tour, and it's been great. It's one of my favorite songs to play on the set, probably for the most part, because I haven't been playing it for the last twenty years. But uh, it's it's a cool song there's not a ton of lyrics in this song. And, um, so it's a little bit more clear cut, I think of, uh, drowning, you know, drowning in a relationship. As far as the Eastern feel to, um, Chalamet's deep ends, I think that it might just come down to, uh, well, for one, uh, not knowing music theory, which is, can be, um, advantageous, I think <laughs> at times, cause you, you find yourself, you know, rooting around in, uh, different scales that you don't even understand what they are. And, uh, Sometimes they end up being kind of Eastern. I also have an affinity, I unintentionally, I think, for half steps, and uh, I think that you find a lot of that in Eastern music as well. But yeah, I think sometimes I just I end up in a different um, scale than I'm probably supposed to be in. It happened just recently on some of the new stuff that we were, that Chris was working on. So I guess I guess it keeps happening. The unending
2: projectable
1: You know, as far as any kind of a loose concept that kind of works through it, I mean, we're on song four now, and I think that making friends and acquaintances, as I said earlier, you know, casualty was kind of um, weird. The, the album starts by being thrown into the action of maybe like a certain specific uh, drunken evening or a drunken fight, you know. In by song four, I think it's kind of, one could see it as uh, laying out what's going on out in the world. Um, You know, the the album's not just one evening. It's kind of, uh, nor would I say it spans an entire relationship. I think it probably only spans this suffering tail end of this relationship, you know? So yeah, Making Friends and Acquaintances, I think it just explores that idea of like, what is this couple like relative to um, their society, to their community? And um, what may they or may not they be getting into when they're out in the world on their own. (laughs) Yeah, for Making Friends and Acquaintances, this was one of the songs that uh, Cursive didn't actually even, this was a song that we had to poach from, uh, in between like that Cursive kind of breaking up and getting back together again, I was uh, cobbling together a different band called Braces, and that was uh, my wife at the time, uh, Kim Hyman. It was Kim and I, she was playing bass, I was playing guitar, and Clint, snazzy, cursive drummer, played drums with us. But we never played out. Um, We were really just working on the songs and then we went and recorded them. And I think the idea was Kim and I were gonna continue. Actually, I know the idea plan was is that when we moved out to Portland, we tried out different drummers, including a gentleman from um, Kind of Like Spitting, played with him at one point out in Portland. But, you know, then Kim, and i divorced disbanded and the band disbanded (laughs) uh and uh so as we were trying to round out domestica i had these five songs from braces and uh we ended up putting them out on this domestica reissue it's a seven inch that we did that kind of goes along with the domestica reissue we did not conclude the recording of making friends just because it's already I mean it is interesting to hear the first version of it but it's a little less compelling to us other than these four other songs that very well could have been also on domestica and i think they're interesting songs and i think at least a, at least a couple of them would have been cool on domestica but i'm not one to poach songs and put them from one band and put them to another or you know like i don't it's something i've avoided for the most part for my entire career So even then, it felt uncomfortable for me to go to Cursive, the band, and kind of be like, well, uh, I do have these other songs here, and they maybe would have been Cursive songs had we kept going, and maybe we can, if we need to round out this album, maybe we can just kind of take one of these. Interestingly, we took Making Friends and Acquaintances, which is a um, much quieter, almost folky song in a way, Probably the most folky song. I guess the folk song on the record, actually. I mean, if you want to call it folk, it seems like that's maybe a bit of a stretch. But um, it follows more of a classic chord structure. Uh, so why we chose that one instead of some of the heavier stuff on braces, uh, I think I just really liked this song a lot. I guess I just thought it was the song that stood out of those five songs. Cursive, the rest of the band, they were open to it. And Cursive did a nice job with it. I mean, it was real, already one quarter us anyways, Clint and I. But bringing, having, you know, Matt and Ted on it definitely um, brought the song to life.
2: But still I can hear those dirty birds chirp away. It's the sun I know by heart. Sometimes I resent making friends and acquaintances. It's a day.
1: It's a cool bit of history just thinking about, uh, because the Moguses have gone so far in their, with their productions and with their career. But at at that time, um, they were buddies of ours that were um, just really talented and the music community was recognizing like, wow, the Moguses like really know their shit. So they had a house in Lincoln, Nebraska, that they uh, built out um, a real basic. You'd be surprised at how basic looking this um, studio was. It really wasn't even a studio. I mean, we really just kind of played in their basement, and they had a um, kind of like a back room, like kind of like a smaller like mud room, like laundry room type of room, where they had um, they had a board and they had um, a tape machine. Actually, maybe they didn't have a tape machine yet. It, that might have been pre tape machine. So it was pretty tight in there. And anyway, and I'm now remembering we re- we recorded this to eight at. But yeah, everything was, um, it was really quite nice, I suppose. It it didn't look nice, but their outboard gear, I think, was pretty decent already at that point. But also, you could say it was incredibly rudimentary to where they ended up years later. They were still kind of like building what they were doing. AJ really recorded that album. AJ's the older Mogus, and and Mike was more of an assistant at that time. But Mike was learning um, with a voracious appetite. So I think by Ugly Organ already, we were we did Ugly Organ with Mike. But we continue to do other albums with AJ as well. They both have um, great sensibility and they both have like impeccable ears. I think Mike would even agree that AJ even more so. AJ, um, I think he's an audio genius, probably is probably what people would say. That's what I'm saying right now. How about that? Ted sings on the verses of the song. And uh, for a while there, I started thinking that this was a song Ted wrote. And I think that Ted has since said, come back to me, and said, like, no. But he did write, um, he wrote the lyrics for the verses that he sings. And I think that maybe is some of the confusion. I I think of it as a Ted song for that reason. I will say that there is a familiarity in the type of songwriting I do in the bass line. Red So Deep's kind of based around a bass line. So I wrote the song as a baseline. Um, it's something that Matt McGinn and I have a very good relationship about. With cursive, specifically, sometimes a song is written just as a baseline, which means that Matt's part is already written for him. Uh, but he's always been really cool about it. He doesn't mind that at all. And then he's able to like give it flourishes. And um, I've never written an entire composition for him. I've just kind of been like, here, this riff. Sorry, I already have this riff written. And then he just kind of takes it on. Um, but this song is a riff it's yeah it's a it's a as a decent amount of cursive songs are it's like a riff it's a riffs based song in that riff i guess that was a long-winded way of saying the riff looks familiar to the way i write so i mean it probably is something i wrote i'm still not convinced but it looks familiar it has my dna but i consider it a ted song because he sings the majority of it Well, having Ted sing a decent amount on this record was really um, something that I wish that we've done a better job of keeping that up because back to, you know, I mentioned bringing Ted into the band was a difficult decision to make because of him being a songwriter already and didn't want to kind of uh, curtail any of his own songwriting. But we also opened the door to him just be like, and also write whatever you want to write, you know, like we we can be co-writers of this band and um we'll bring you in singing you know just kind of like wanted to bring ted in is who he is which is a songwriter so he sings a decent amount on domestica though he didn't as i understand now it's like he didn't really write anything for that he started writing stuff for obi oregon and for happy hollow but uh we did a good job of of sharing vocal duties a bit more on domestica and i think it's great it's just something that we've been doing less of and uh and i think that's uh regrettable i think that You know, we should be, I don't know, Ted's just such an important part of of the band, you know? And I think that his vocals and his um, vocal presence is part of that as well. the end of red so deep i think that's a nice moment on the record when we get into like the small falsetto section i guess that's a um a female's like perspective at the end most of the song is about um questionable infidelity and uh, frustrations that arise as a result so that's a lot of the song kind of is um a fight in a sense and uh so the ending's kind of like a denouement i guess suppose of um the other side of relationships, of like you're still going to be in a continued relationship, you need to make up at some point, and I think that's kind of what that nicer moment of the end of the song is, and uh, me singing falsetto. It's it sounds silly, but I think it's pretty lame to consider female songwriters a genre, and I try to avoid that notion. The way that so much of this like goofy music industry, like <laughs> you know, like creates like a genre onto a gender, you know. Um, but it just so happens that I love I love the female voice and I love female songwriters. I tend to lean that way when I'm when I'm looking for music that I like. And that's all to say that I also wish that I had the capacity to be a woman who could sing with a beautiful female voice, you know? Um, I don't get to do that. But I think it's moments like this in the song in, in Red So Deep where I want to at least emulate that without it coming off as goofy or mockery or something like that. Certainly not mockery, but just... You don't wanna don't wanna be an idiot in like like a kids in the hall impersonation of a woman or something like that. But I know in my own mind, I know what I'm wanting to do, and that is I wish that I could I wish that I were a woman sometimes so I could do what women do in music. <laughs> uh, and nowadays I think that I probably would have had that part sung by a woman. But um When we were working on Domestica, we were very much a four piece band, and as I kind of said at the top of this conversation, we weren't really looking at the notion of overdubs and, you know, you record an album in nine days and you pretty much just, everyone lays down their parts and you mix it and you're done. a cool production trick um, at the end of Red So Deep. I want to say that I remember the specific uh, rack outboard gear that they used for it, but it's not true because I think the one I'm thinking of is something that Mike didn't get until I don't remember if it was called like a diffuser or something like that, but it was a pretty cool piece that he got um, when we started working on Happy Hollow and we used it a lot then. But it's a sim- it was of a similar um, kind of deconstruction, of that sound. It's like it was we're doing it to the drums and it's a basically like really oversaturating it and then um man as not an audio engineer i'm not finding the right words about it but uh by so grossly oversaturating it it also kind of like deconstructs upon itself if that's a, a good way to put it i don't think it's a great way to put it but um there's people out there who understand what i'm trying to say uh but that's cool as hell and also you know they were doing that a handful of years before. I think that became very popular. Uh, there's uh, any you know like myriad guitar pedals that um, want to create that same kind of sound. Not saying that they're it's like the MOGA sound from Domeska, but but uh, I you know they were doing that earlier on, and they're doing it. I'm sure it was all analog the way they created it. AJ uh, likes stuff far heavier than cursive. AJ introduced me to I Hate God back then. They grew up in North Platte, and they grew up with with a lot of metal, the way you do when you grow up in North Platte, Nebraska. Uh, let's see, the Lament of Pretty Baby. I guess talking about metal. I mean, I certainly wouldn't call it a metal song, but it's uh, it's uh, definitely a different approach. Uh, the Lament of Pretty Baby is kind of a like a heavier riff. Was it maybe the heaviest riff on the record? I think my impression is that it, it is. And I should say, too, similar to the Muggs Brothers, I also like metal. I didn't really grow up with metal at all. It's something... Oddly, I started embracing metal as an adult, which I think is the exact opposite way that we're supposed to do it. I think you're supposed to love it when you're a kid and then you grow out of it or something. But uh, I'm still learning. I'm still... like I'm on my lifelong journey of learning metal in uh, hardcore I just think it's great. It just excites me. I tend to explain my relationship with metal and uh, hardcore as similar to jazz, in that I also love jazz, but I can't say I totally understand it. I love to listen to it, and I love to count with it, <laughs> and I love to hear the innovation of metal and jazz. <laughs> uh, but it's hard for me to like. It's hard for me to really understand it the way like a true uh, metalhead does you know like a true metal head who like can hear like all of the uh, subtleties between like the nuance between what makes something death metal and what makes this what makes this death metal and what makes this grind you know like I don't know I can't figure that out but all to say back to Lament a Pretty Baby this is not hardly what I would call a metal riff but it's a, a, like a heavier uglier or more aggressive riff that uh, I've kind of flirted with over the last 30 years as it's just another thing that I'm interested in And uh, I think a lot of these ideas don't tend to make it onto albums, but this one did, and I think that's cool. fair to say that this song just has a lot more I think it has just more attitude than some of the other songs on Domestica. Ted didn't care for the song that much um, after the fact and didn't want to play it for a long time and uh, I wish I didn't bring that up because I feel like it'd be more fair for him to explain why (laughs) because now I'm going to put now I'm going to speak for him and say that I have a hunch that he might feel that the riff is derivative in its own way of just kind of being like that this isn't quite cursive this is um Maybe a little bit closer of like Tim's like occasional dalliance into um, wanting to find more aggressive songwriting. Cursive is a band is like the lightest hard rock band, right? I think, or something. You know, it's like we're kind of not hard rock, but then sometimes we're very hard rock. But it's just kind of sprinkled throughout, or something. It's confusing even to us, and it's made us um, to our own demise. It's kind of left us a little bit genreless at times, and so people don't know where to. <laughs> <laughs> who were we supposed to tour with sometimes we don't know but we've got a chance to open for mastodon <laughs> you know but while well, you know mastodon fans would flip us off you know but it was still cool to get to open for mastodon what a dream i fucking love mastodon the Yeah, I kind of just kind of went off for a while just on the riff itself, which feels a little bit out of character. But the song itself, The Lament of Pretty Baby, uh, it started as just a bad, um, a little bit of trauma that Matt and I have in our life. Um, So Matt and I um, were essentially brothers. Uh, We grew up on the same block and um, were placed in front of each other when we were um, infants. And so we've just grown up literally side by side. And we also grew up with um, a gaggle of sisters, both of us are the youngest. And um, he has three older sisters and I have four older sisters. So we've grown up under their wings and under their protection and under their guidance. And also it made me um, scared of men, you know? (laughs) Um, I grew up scared of men because they would, um, because men would like make lewd suggestions toward my older sisters. They'd like hit on my older sisters, and it scared me, and it made and it made me really hateful as well. Uh, and Matt went, endured that as well. Anyways, a traumatic um, a traumatic uh, experience that we went through uh, is um, one of Matt's older sisters um, was uh, approached on the street, like walking home from school. It was um, like kind of like lewd conduct, and was like nearly could have been abducted. But it was like a sexual harassment and she came home and uh, it was terrifying, you know. And uh, I think that it's, uh, you know, I think that everything turned out, everything turned out fine. I mean, thankfully, nothing too bad actually happened. But um, we were young boys and we're kind of there at the wrong time. And I think that we were kind of being ushered out of the room, you know. But it was scary and, uh, and stayed with me. So the song started about just a reflection about that, and then I kind of um, recognized, you know, what I was getting at in context to my current situation at the time of um, back to like the relationship that we were writing about. And so yeah, it ended up being a song about kind of being pro um, the strength of women that, or like the strength that women kind of have to endure and have to uphold when dealing with piles of shit that are the other half. <laughs> <laughs> of, of males, you know. I
2: don't want to be seen as a pretty thing, cause it's the
1: It kind of goes back to the fight at the end, I suppose. You know, I think it can be kind of interchangeable at that point. Like, who's really speaking? But um, you know, like one trying to present themselves as strong. I think it's, it's kind of like the heat of an argument, pretending that you're the strong one and recognizing you're not the strong one. But also, um, I'm just so often on the attack on myself um, in my songwriting and uh, thinking about the way the song kind of like wraps itself up. I step out of the song myself toward the end and kind of just call myself out for um like martyring again you know i suppose so just like you're hurting this other person but yet you're like still managing to find ways to show that you're like also hurt yourself or you know like turning it back onto myself i suppose i suppose that makes it the song a little bit less cohesive and a little bit confusing but uh kind of like open for interpretation for the listener but if i were to parse it out myself i would say yeah there's kind of a separation at the end there where i'm back to kind of attacking myself but attacking myself from the um vantage point of um the woman in the relationship
2: So cry yourself to sleep
1: Game of Who Needs Who the Worst is one of my favorites on the record. I think it's just uh, directed composition. I think it's an interesting composition. I appreciate that we let ourselves uh, stretch out through the opening with kind of a trippy-ish instrumental section. This album doesn't have a lot of room for that, it seems like. It's a pretty tight album. We let ourselves go off at the end of Red So Deep. I think that's a nice moment as well. But so, yeah, we're kind of having an instrumental moment at the beginning of uh, Game of Who Needs Who the Worst is, uh, I quite like that, and uh, really it's just because we were kind of smitten by the section. I think what happened is that I had written my guitar part in three, four, and uh, Matt had accidentally written in four over it. But as young music learners, uh, you know, threes and fours, they meet at twelve. So <laughs> so we learned that we could, uh, we could create a loop that I could play in three and he could play in four and we would still end up meeting um, every twelfth bar or whatever, meeting up again. That was a cool little revelation for us. A fancy little music trick in any song. There's a lot of storytelling in uh, this song that I like. I think it evokes a lot of imagery for me. And uh, the ambient um, music at the top, the instrumental ambient section at the top, ambient maybe is a stretch, but ambient for this album anyway. I think it all kind of evokes imagery and I wonder what everyone else sees. The song's like very green for me, like it looks green. And it's set in a pretty nice cocktail party that's like really dimly lit but it's also green. <laughs> it's green, <laughs> dimly lit and green. I don't know, I hope that other people can relate to that. But I like that. I appreciate that about the song. It's that it really helps evoke imagery for me.
2: That prick to you was it and or degrading and dirty? I know you like it both ways.
1: it's a pretty um ugly song it's like the lyrical content it's really the ugliest probably of the album but that makes me appreciate it as well I think it's great I'm always supportive of any time that I'm willing to um, kind of go a little bit further out to to um, really expose what I think is really trashy and gross about humanity. And, and that includes in what we see in ourselves too. Uh, I think that that's kind of um, more of like a raw exposing of our actions and our reactions. It's an ugly song for me because it is from a, a male perspective. And then it's like the male being really smug and being really ugly, which Frankly, I can be. I'm a human being, you know, <laughs> like it's I know what it's like, but I also see it in other people as well, you know. Um, so I find it to be an interesting like it's like an interesting case study, I think, is maybe the way I would see this song. I like that it paints um, kind of specific, uh, maybe a little bit closer to specific scenarios of like a, of a certain evening. To me also, if I know I don't need to be saying this, but it's also fictionalized.
2: So what did you say? To make you so goddamn defiant So fucking triumphant Relations In direct competition Domination The players Disguised as the lover The best friend A game of homies
1: Kim would have no connection to this song. I just don't have any like historical um, connection to it. Uh, but it's the feelings, you know, it's the feelings of what we were going through and and how we were just how we can get so bitter towards how we can be so bitter toward one another. I'll say respect to Kim or, or just to to anyone I've dated or been with. Strong motherfuckers, you know, <laughs> like, like uh, you know, like strong dominant women that are fucking cool you know and uh, so yeah I, I guess I should say too that I guess that's kind of something about this record too is it's not really um, it's not really cookie cutter or black and white as far as like the aggressive moments equal male or you know it's kind of shared amongst gender I guess
2: Dinner's getting cold. you haven't touched a thing. What's it gonna be? I can hold out much longer When it's steady, I'm just acting out my roles When you're ready, I'll be walking out that door And don't call me pretty, baby, anymore A foolish worker bee
1: Radiator Hums has been a controversial song for us on this record uh similar to laments of pretty baby i suppose um i think that uh fans of this album just really fucking hate it when i when i attack this i go on the attack on this song uh and again i said earlier there's like there's no there's no songs on this album that i'm embarrassed of or anything like that and i just i'll say that as a disclaimer as i as i'll now like kind of uh Defame the song just a little bit just moderately uh, we didn't play radiator homes for a while because we felt again that it came off as too derivative not of even of stuff that we listened to much it just seemed too derivative of the moment it just had a really big kind of power chorus to it and that's just not really who we are Maybe I should say when we recognize that we're doing something that as we're working on music, if we can recognize like, oh, that's just as kind of like a typical big major chorded power chorus vibe that's just kind of very like fist pumping hard rock. If we find ourselves dabbling in that, we'll have a tendency to um, do something counter. Like we'll go in a different direction with it. Um, with Radiator homes, it just all kind of came together the way it did, and probably for good reason, because people really like this song a lot, and I totally respect that, and I enjoy playing it too. Um, what I really love about Radiator, though, is um the verses. The verses, for me, make up for what I think is just kind of an average okay chorus, or, you know what, how about this? The chorus is probably really good. It's just not to my tastes, if that's fair if people can be okay with that. It's not really, um, it's just not really my wheelhouse of musical interest as much. But the verses I think are some of my favorite moments on the album. Uh, And so I love this song for that reason. I love to play it acoustically um, because when I play it acoustically just on my own, I'm able to um, diffuse the courses a little bit into something that I think is like, that makes more sense to me. And I also really get to play up the falsetto and the beauty of the of the verses and uh, the verses again are this is this female perspective. And I just really, I'm just really into what she's saying. I almost feel like it's not me. I guess it is. I mean, I wrote it, but I guess I get into that song enough that I feel like that voice. I'm really patting myself on the back here. I apologize everyone, but I feel like that voice comes off as um, accurate enough, I guess, or as uh, authentic enough that I enjoy performing it because I feel like I'm performing somebody else's piece. And I like, I you don't know, I just like what she says. She's like a real, um, she's very empowered at that point, And I think it's great. a radiator plays a big role in um, Eraserhead. And uh, I suppose people can interpret it in different ways, but I think the radiator is, I don't know if I should say simply put, I don't think it's simple as far as the symbolism, but it's just, it's this thing that continues to like rattle and hum in his apartment. And um, in his like intense anxiety and depression, he just like stares at it and it consumes him. It ends up just being kind of like symbolic or emblematic of, of his anxiety and his depression, I think. Something like that. So the film Eraserhead uh, is astonishing to me. I'm just a huge fan of that movie. I understood it, which I think is can sound hilarious to a lot of people because <laughs> I think I understand that movie. I think I understand everything about that movie. That movie comes across to me like a very linear... <laughs> like a Cameron Crowe story or something. like. I think it's just being, I saw it when I was um, a young adult and um, just the fear of being uh, caught in a relationship and accidentally impregnating somebody. And uh, it's a male movie. It's a very male movie. It's about young men being terrified of responsibility, being terrified of adulthood. And that has been such a huge influence and i think it just it resonated with me so absolutely i think i'm terrified of responsibility probably (laughs) as just like a typical male i think uh the graduate is also one of my favorite movies and uh it's just like kind of like this like weird male fantasy of just like kind of getting to be like like, can my life just be about nothing can i like just do nothing in life can i just like float around and and can i like fall in love with a woman but also like have sex with her mom and, you know, just like a lot of just like, it's kind of an awful movie (laughs) and it's so narcissistic, you know, but I really, um, I relate to all that because um, sadly also, I mean, I'm glad that we can be talking about representing a female perspective on this record, but I also have to accept and admit that I'm also, I grew up male or I am male, you know, (laughs) as much as I wish I wasn't, I guess, you know, but it's just kind of like what I have to deal with. And, uh, but I like to be honest about that. And like, I like to take a shit on men and on me. Sad little boy,
2: I know you get confused, but everyone goes through these trials of self-truth and self-abuse. When you're selfish, you're so hard not to adore. When you're selfish, I just love you even more. I want to help you, but you got to say the word. Round, in this hole We've dug for ourselves Throw me in
1: The Night I Lost the Will to Fight, it was an unfinished song. I never would make a record in these days, uh, which is wild because I think it's a really neat song and people really like the song. It ended up being a really effective closer for this record. But I can't even speak to the composition that much because when I hear it, I think I hear it so differently than um, than people who um, know this record. I can't really speak to the composition because I don't quite understand the composition because it's unfinished to me. Like it sounds like it ends up being kind of a unique for a cursive song for that reason, which I appreciate. It's kind of experimental to me. It comes off as experimental and largely instrumental. And I don't generally write instrumentally. I almost never do. So the lyrics on this song, "I, I Lost the Will to Fight." are really um, less about a vocal lead and more of just like another instrument. They chant, they just they repeat things. they repeat lines from other parts of the album. <laughs> they just kind of have a repetitive um, like mantra that they say. So to me, it's just like another um, instrument melody on the song. And I think that's an interesting to me that's interesting for a cursive song and I think it's interesting for the record. Bring something different than the other songs don't, but clearly we liked it enough that we thought it would be cool on the record. And I think it's probably just me being kind of persnickety of just being like, well, I never, I feel like I never quite got a chance to lay all my ideas out for that song before we rushed in to record the album in nine days, you know. But it did give me an opportunity, um, as it was. I think one of the last songs... I mean, it was. must have been one of the last songs we wrote or one of the last songs we chose to be on the record. And it gave me the opportunity to um, put a, a bow on the record, to kind of like to tie a bow at the end of the whole thing. It gave afforded me the opportunity to um, bring it back to the top by um, citing The Night Has Fallen Down the Staircase um, to kind of try to help bring a cohesion to the album. But also, um, lyrically, it's important to note that this is why we've always uh, contended that it's uh, not a divorce, technically not a divorce record, is that the couple doesn't break up. And the couple, instead, it's the night that I lost the will to fight. Yet another night that ends in, in an argument and ends in defeat.
2: The night has fallen down the staircase.
1: This, I feel, is from a male perspective, and it's uh, essentially feeling overall defeatist and just being like, I can't fight anymore, I'm just going to stop fighting, and I'll accept my lot in this relationship. And I do think it's more common, I think it's actually far more common for men to do this than women. Um, I suppose you could always come up with different examples, and you can't really make the stereotype. But I feel like we can probably both, or any of us can think of plenty of examples of men who just clam up you know like later in life and they just stop talking it's kind of sad really (laughs) you know they just stop fighting it's kind of weird but you know there's for any examples that you can think of like that you can also think of like plenty of like really sad scenarios of women who are kind of muzzled you know or um kind of like kept under the thumb of their like male counterpart so there's that too they have they lose the will to fight because they're kind of not allowed to I mean, I suppose you can see it both ways. The we were really um, fairly gobsmacked at um, the reaction that the album got. We just aren't used to that. Like most musicians, (laughs) you're not used to, you know, you make something and you get really excited about it and you can daydream about its success, but you don't truly anticipate it, you know? Or I should say, it's certainly not. If you're coming out of Omaha, Nebraska, it's just not really what one expects. So yeah, I remember quite vividly being out on tour. We're doing a co-headline tour with Small Brown Bike, a band from Michigan who are still Really close friends of ours to this day, and we're playing appropriately very small rooms. But as the tour was going along, those rooms were like filling up and like selling out, and like we ended up some of them just being like packed with people sitting waiting outside and or like wanting to get in, and it blew our minds. We couldn't quite process it, you know. Um, but that was a lot of fun though too. Um, what was most fun about it was just. Um, uh being around the country and eventually even then being in Europe and just people singing their songs. And you know, like we're a local band. So we understood being a part of a community in Omaha, but now you're kind of a part of a community in um like Richmond, Virginia. I think I remember playing Richmond, Virginia on that tour and just being like, well, this is wild. I guess you know, now we're like we're part of this community, at least for the night. Domesco was the first time that it seemed like we were kind of part of a conversation. And uh, I never expected that. And uh, and I still feel really flattered about that. And I'm still flattered by people's appreciation for it so many years later. If maybe I should say more flattered by that, actually. Uh, it's one thing to do something that kind of uh, makes waves in the moment, but to have something that's, uh can kind of keep its stamina going, it's pretty wild and I'm really proud of that. I look back now at that success and uh i wish i would have understood it more and appreciated it more truly i just didn't understand it i can look back now and be like holy shit like you had you know like there was you were really a part of that conversation there for a while that's a pretty big deal but uh i didn't know i didn't understand it at the time and frankly i think that's better you know it's better that we didn't really understand it because that way there would it couldn't really get to our heads go to our heads and it never did i'm glad it didn't consume us at all and back to saying like looking back at it i wish it would have consumed me a little bit i wish i would have like and going back to just like i wish i could have appreciated it some more but i just didn't really understand it but i think that's cool i think that's cool to kind of like to not have grown up in la and like had like a dad who was in steely dan or something i don't know i'm probably calling somebody out i don't mean to i just threw out steely dan randomly i'm sure they have children uh you know, cause then uh, your perspective, your perspective would be so different. We had zero perspective and I think that's great. <laughs> call kim and i ever really having a conversation about it uh i think it'd be an awkward conversation i don't talk about my records with the people that i'm close to in my life i never have and i think so i think with kim and with domestica it's the same thing it's just like eh, you know i think it's just an awkward conversation i you know it's like everything's laid out and um if something in it would have really truly pissed her off i think she would have brought it up to me i hope But shortly after it came out, I mean, she was really supportive and seemed, you know, excited at times about the reaction that the record was getting and stuff. So she seemed nothing other than supportive about it. And she's always been very supportive of what I'm doing in music. And I really appreciate that. We'd been really out of touch for years and for um, a good amount of years. And I reached out to her about this reissue and about the fact that we were going to finally put our braces songs onto um, a seven inch And she was just delighted, you know. She just thought it was really cool, and there wasn't much more to say than that. You know, she's kind of busy with her own life, so (laughs) she's, like, not really, uh, you know, I'm sure to her that just seems like a thousand years ago, so. But uh, other reactions, um, and I've told this story a few times, but it is funny and worth noting. My grandma was really pissed off about uh, domestica. She saw it, and it's not unfair the way she saw it. It's what we talked about earlier in this conversation that I also grappled with, which is, should I really be airing all of this, um, all of my personal life out into the world like this? And my grandma says no. You know, <laughs> She's like, no, you shouldn't be. Um, she saw it as kind of, um, you know, because she's also very Catholic. And so divorce, um, she was ashamed of my divorce, you know, and just kind of really did not appreciate that I was running around, letting everyone know that I got a divorce, <laughs> that I was in a, that I was in a messy relationship that I ended up in divorce. You know, I can only assume that there were certain people that were coming out to the show specifically because they felt the need to talk to me about their relationship that they're currently going through. And I'd, I'd listen, and I would try to offer advice that I could, but oftentimes too, I would, I ended up kind of just saying that what became like a running joke for me, which was. Do you really think you should be asking me? <laughs> you know, like, like I'm not sure that uh, you know. Like, if, if anything, I think I just kind of exposed that I don't know how to do it. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, you know, I'm not i th- I'm not a licensed therapist. <laughs> but in that, there's just a lot of beauty in that too. There's just a lot of camaraderie, and uh, you know, people um, you know resonated with something that I sang about and spoke about and you can kind of find kinship in that when you're going through that
0: Visit lifeoftherecord.com for more information about cursive You'll also find a full transcript of this episode and a link to purchase domestica. Instrumental music by Flooding Thanks for listening